Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, finding home with a tight housing market should eviction rules be tightened in D.C. Plus, death of a single-family home, Toronto Council Green Lights multiplexes citywide. Will Metro Vancouver follow? And is it time to bring down the hammer on Airbnb as the city continues to lose long-term rentals? Plus, the Park Board approves the lethal removal of Canadian geese. Our Friday wrap panel weighs in. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Spent a lot of time today talking about housing. At 4 p.m., we look at the death of the single-family home. That's a question I'm asking, by the way. That's not a prediction I'm making. But Toronto Council greenlit multiplexes citywide on Wednesday. And the question we ask is, will Metro Vancouver follow? In fact, Toronto is the largest um, city in North America to do so. It'll be very interesting. 70% of the homes or neighborhoods in Toronto are single-family homes. This will leave up to, lead to the building of up to four plexes on a single uh, property for that city. So a really interesting conversation. And the second question we're going to be asking, is it time to bring down the hammer on Airbnb as the city continues to lose long-term rentals? Now, we look at Quebec's fight against Airbnb. In fact, this week they introduced legislation before, even if you were an Airbnb um, uh, proponent and you had a suite you were renting, you had to, of course, uh, register. Many people didn't register and many of them were illegal. But what they're doing now is not only do you have to register, but there'll be a $100,000 fine. BC is in the midst of writing legislation at this point in regards to how to deal with Airbnbs, which would give municipalities a lot more power to regulate them uh, as well. So we're going to look at that issue uh, during the four o'clock hour with um, Michael Geller. But first, let's talk rentals and evictions. Today, we learned of an organization called First United, uh, which recently wrote a report looking at evictions in our cities and the impact that they have on individuals and in families in this very tight housing mar- market. Uh, they're beginning a, uh, an eviction mapping project. You know, the organization, organization polled 443 tenants who were facing evictions. Now, first, uh, United wants to collect that data on how many people have been evicted, where and why, and what happens to them once they're, uh, they're out. Uh, similar reports uh, have been written in cities like Boston, San Francisco, and uh, Montreal as well. Now, some of the complaints are based around the fact that landlords use rules to increase rent significantly. They're sometimes saying that a family member will move out, so the renter moves out, and then they're able to jack up the rents. It's a very complex issue. Uh, Sarah Marsden, who's with First United, spoke to our Jill Bennett uh, a few hours ago to explain what they were uh, sort of looking for and what the report uh, would show. Take Take a listen. So we found that people were being evicted both in formal ways and informal ways. And I'll talk first about the formal ways that people are getting evicted. And what I mean by that is a situation where someone gets a notice of eviction, notice ten tenancy from their landlord. So they get the eviction paperwork from their landlord. And um, in terms of the reason they got evicted, about 60% of those were for landlord's use. Um, and then we saw, for example, 10% were for non-payment of rent, 10% were for cause. And there, there are quite a number of different ways that people can receive notices to end tenancy, but those were, those were sort of the main numbers there. So it's a very complex issue, but the fact that we have an eviction mapping project uh, and and what and it's interesting what it's revealing. I also wanted to speak to landlords because it's a because it is a very complex issue. Joining me now is Dave Hutniak, CEO of Landlord BC. David, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, first and foremost, uh, do you think 
landlords abuse that simple uh, rule where you can say, look, I want to move into the suite uh, or I have family members wanting to move uh, into the suite. In many cases, some would argue, that's used as an excuse to get the person out and then find a new tenant and jack up the rent significantly. How how much of a problem is that, do you think, in this market? Well, the thing is, it's it, there's nothing illegal about uh, reclaiming one's uh, rental unit for personal use. So there's very clear uh, regulation around that in terms of amount of notice and and then what the landlord uh, landlord's obligations are. And in particular, you know, they actually need to do this in good faith and move into the unit for at least six months. And if they don't... Uh, uh, they can be subject to a very significant penalty of up to 12 months' rent. So, so I think you know there's a regulatory framework here that uh, really, um, you know, we need one that allows uh, landlords to reclaim their 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 units if they, they or or child, uh, etc., wish to uh, reoccupy it, uh, but also protect tenants. And I think by and large. That's probably accomplished uh, with that, but uh, I think one of the challenges that uh, that has emerged here is that uh, um, uh, you know the, the process. You know, so should a tenant uh, uh, feel that uh, this was not done in good faith, mm-hmm. the, the process they need to go through through the residential tenancy branch probably could be a little more straightforward, and also, you know. Um, Currently, the, the residential tenancy branch is, is continues to be challenged in terms of sort of the the promptness which uh, with which they can give uh, both tenants and landlords access to justice. So, you know, I think the, there's there's other things uh, um, at play here, uh, and you know, certainly from our perspective, I mean, our expectation is landlords are going to do these things in good faith. Uh, be responsible, professional, etc. But we're not a regulatory body, and, and I'm not going to, you know, sit here on the call with you and say that that what you're suggesting never happens. It's, it, it, I'm sure it, it does, and it's really unfortunate. Uh, Do you so, think it needs to be tightened right that, now? Do you think it needs to be the, the the rules themselves need to be tightened? And I'm, I'm not trying to pick on landlords yeah. here. I know it's not easy, uh, but just yeah. because of the tight market, which you know, I you as the landlord, the CEO of Landlord BC, didn't create. This has been uh, yeah. multi-generational for and it's been going on for a few decades we've sleepwalked in, into this sort of housing crisis in many yeah. ways um, but do you think the rules need to be tightened because uh, one would argue there's probably plenty of landlords who aren't following the spirit of that those rules and using that type of mm-hmm. rule uh, um, uh, to actually you know find new tenants where they can significantly increase the rent sure I, I guess first of all I should say I mean I have no uh, we have no statistics you, you know that Support. I think the the uh, organization you you were quoting there. Mm. Or, uh, I don't know whether that number is correct or not. I mean, it would be the only the residential tenancy branch would have a good sense for that. So, you know, my sense is that non-payment of rent is is in fact uh, you know a significant uh, significantly larger percentage of disputes and, and why tenancies end is because of rent is not being paid. So, so I think that's a starting point. But in, in terms of uh, looking at, at this whole issue of personal use, there's, there's, I think there is an opportunity to, to, to revisit it from a couple perspectives. One is, first of all, it, 
it uh, it actually has a very narrow definition in terms of who would uh, qualify uh, in terms of the personal use uh, reclamation of of the unit. Mm -hmm. It's only child of the landlord or landlord's spouse. But in in reality, I mean, you know, everybody's struggling with housing and, and, you know, owners of these units have siblings, grandparents, grandchildren. None of them are eligible to be included in that definition. And I think that would be a really constructive uh, a revision because, I, again, I don't have, you know, uh, hard data here, but just anecdotally, I know we hear that from our members. We're, you know, an elderly couple who's saying, you know, my my son and, 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 and uh, daughter and grandchild are, you know, or, or my grandchild, rather, is challenged for housing right now. I would like them to occupy this unit, but they can't reclaim it for personal use. So I think that should be changed. But the the other thing is, Again, partially because of you know some of the challenges that the residential tenancy branch in, ter- in terms of getting uh, timely access to justice, you know, it, it may be time to look at whether or not that six months six month period is appropriate. Um, perhaps it should be a longer window. And I know, you know, there are going to be landlords who aren't going to like that. But I think you know if we were to expand that definition to include, like I said, siblings and grandparents and grandchildren. Uh, you know, I think that more broadly, we, you know, we'd be amenable to supporting perhaps moving that six-month window that you have to occupy the unit to one year. At least it's a conversation worth worth having uh, to, to, I think, you know, be address some of the concerns that we know are, we're hearing from, from our members, but also, you know, to your point that this is a challenging uh, rental environment right now and, and uh, perhaps uh, some additional sensitivity around this specific uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, issue around tendencies could be could David, be addressed. David, I'm curious, um, give me a sense of what, and I know there's not going to be much sympathy out for this, but I think we need to hear it because, uh, you know, we're relying more on investors who have bought condominiums and apartments and renting them out. Mm-hmm. What have the last few years been like regarding COVID, regarding a cap on rental increases? What what have, what, is, what has it been like for landlords? Yeah, that's a great question and I appreciate it. You know, it's... There's a misperception here that, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and frankly, it's there's, a, there's some delusion on the part of folks who have become landlords that it's some easy, low-risk, you know, hugely lucrative venture. And the fact of the matter is, you know, being a landlord is extremely challenging in, in British Columbia. Uh, there's huge risk, you know, the, the cost uh, to, to to make those investments because of interest rates and inflation, et cetera, have, you know, increased exponentially. So, so, you know, yes, unfortunately, there is not a lot of sympathy for landlords, but the fact of the matter is, you know, they are providing crucial, crucial housing. It's an important service. And, and it is naive, frankly, to, to, to believe that, you know, you can constantly, constantly, uh, put more and more pressure on landlords and not expect some really negative uh, consequences. And that is, and we're seeing it. I mean, people are, are leaving the sector uh, because they're basically saying, I can't operate on the basis of negative cash flow, negative rates of returns, rather, year after year after year. So so this is the thing. This is the conversation that needs to be had about how do we, you know, how do we find that balance that, uh, you know, re- respects 
the need for for housing for all British Columbians, but also understands and 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 is, is sensitive to the fact that to provide this housing is extremely extremely difficult and costly, and that's true of whether it's market housing or non-market housing. So so this is this is where we're at. It's a huge dilemma. Certainly, you know, 40 years of not building purpose-built rental never, you know, didn't help. We're, we fortunately, you know, we have, uh, you know, Premier Evie is very focused on housing. I, I think, you know, there's some solutions coming forward, but more needs to be done. But yeah, I mean, this is this is it there, is an issue. There needs to be a meeting of the minds here um, at the end of the day. Absolutely, David. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out. Take care. For just joining us, we were talking to David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC, about um, BC's first eviction mapping project. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, do we need to tighten uh, our tenancy rules to protect um, renters, and uh, it's a very complex story, complex issue. Uh, landlords uh, also have it very difficult as well in regards to protecting their property. And as as uh, David said, and many others have said. Uh, the federal government has been out, out of the uh, rental business for about 40 years. And so to expect uh, private mom-and-pop owners to, to sort of pick up the slack is, is not an easy thing either. So give us a call. Do you think we need to toughen our residential tenancy laws to protect renters? 604-331-2899. Well, let's talk about another type of housing. Uh, as we all know, earlier this week, Premier David Eby um, uh, announced uh, or released uh, BC Housing, a report, a report on BC Housing and found uh, that uh, Shane Ramsey, the then CEO of BC Housing, Housing was actively breaking the conflict of interest agreement when it comes to decisions involving the Atira Housing Society. The society was led by his wife, uh, Janice Abbott. Uh, since 2018, uh, Atira has received $120 million in funding. And uh, the Premier says that Mr. Ramsey uh, sent text messages telling staff to direct grants to Atira, uh, which is a violation of conflict of interest. Now, today, Atira, about an hour and a half ago, sent out a release saying uh, they're going to uh, at least take a look at their own conflict of interest uh, rules, uh, policies and practices. And as I wanted to catch up with Richard Zussman on this issue. Uh, Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, well, pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. So walk me through this uh, over there in Victoria. Um, basically, the group that, uh, that the Premier says uh, was part of the problem, and uh, number one, now say they're going to review their own uh, policies and practices, but the core issue was that they were getting better treatment than anybody else because the CEO of BC Housing is married to the CEO of Atira, which is Janice Abbott. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone's going to be convinced that an internal examination is going to get to the uh, conclusions people are hoping for. And there's more news on this file today. Shane Ramsey, he mentioned, the former CEO of BC Housing, he went to work for the development corporation that the Squamish Nation has. Mm -hmm. Well, he no longer works for them. So he is now out uh, of that organization after these allegations were brought to light through this forensic audit on Monday. His wife, Janice Abbott, is still very much in her job. The board has supported her. Atira continues to stand behind her. And you mentioned this release that came out uh, about an hour ago, uh, and it details an internal look, a task force that will be uh, comprised of people within the organization itself. So TIRA's board chair and the chairs of the Finance and Government Committee. They've already come out and said 
they think they're doing everything great. So I'm not sure what the task force is actually going to do. The other piece of news that may be more significant is the province has been insisted that Atira return this $1.9 million in surplus funds. We now have confirmation that that money has been returned. It came back yesterday, uh, and Atira says it, it took this long because it came after the receipt of the financial information Atira staff had requested from BC Housing. Uh, so that's coming back, but there's still a lot of issues about the way that Atira is governed here. So uh, the former CEO of BC Housing, Shane Ramsey, you saying... Uh, uh, left obviously uh, BC Housing to oversee the real estate development portfolio of the Squamish First Nation. How long ago did this break, uh, the Shane Ramsey news? Yeah, so it just happened in the last uh, hour or so. His name has been cleansed uh, from the website. Uh, and for those uh, who checked in with the organization earlier this week, like I did, there was a update that uh, he no longer is part of the organization. And, you know, Shane Ramsey's departure of BC Housing was clouded uh, with questions. Uh, we now know uh, it clearly was connected to some of these allegations that were brought forward in the forensic audit. We heard this week that Premier David Eby had asked the board to fire Shane Ramsey. The board refused, so Eby fired the board. Uh, then ultimately, Ramsey decided to retire. But that retirement is clearly connected to the uh, inability for him to work closely with the premier and, and housing minister at the time. Uh, so we, the news of him departing from this organization is just something that's unfolding in the, in the last few hours. Here. Well, you know, uh, the Squamish Nation, which has a significant portfolio, and uh, a high-profile project like Sinoc, which is going to be built on the uh, uh, south side of the Broad Street Bridge, last thing you need is somebody who is already uh, sort of cl- who was mired in controversy from another situation that has nothing to do with the Squamish Nation. They don't need somebody like Mr. Ramsey around at the end of the day. No, no the development corporation that Squamish is running is an incredibly substantial organization, probably at this point the most significant developer in Vancouver. Uh, the way that they can work with community through their First Nation is something that uh, has automatic partnership with the municipality, the province, the federal government. You know, we've seen them already on the top of Vancouver Magazine's top power list, right, mm-hmm. themselves. Quisalem helps run this as along with others within the Development Corporation. Uh, clearly, Shane Ramsey had experience here they want to tap into, but they don't want the baggage that now comes with the former... Uh, Head of BC Housing. Uh, what happens with the TIRA now? The, the Premier, uh, Premier Eby, the Housing Minister Ravi Kelo have, uh, have uh, said uh, in their own way, uh, heavily hinting that Ms., uh, Ms. Abbott needs to go, but she hasn't gone. So can they compel a TIRA in any way beyond saying, hey, you're not going to get any funding moving forward? I mean, how can they convince them that she's got to go? They can't. And this is the challenge they're running into now. Ultimately, it's going to come down to dollars and cents. We know that uh, the province has said no new money is coming to Atira. One of the concerns here is that Atira is waiting for some renewals around some of its projects. And Atira has sent out a statement. BC Housing has sent out a statement on behalf saying we're going to ensure the continuity of those who live in these residencies. But there are a nervousness around what that looks like. So I asked uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kal on an interview that uh, will air on Focus BC on BC One through the weekend, uh, where he basically says, you know, we we don't have the power to fire her. That we ultimately need to compel the board to do so. Uh, and the only real pressure they can apply is this financial one. 
that uh, if there are not changes made, if, if changes aren't made to the satisfaction of the province, Atira will no longer receive new money through BC Housing. You would think they read the tea leaves. It's pretty obvious. And it just seems like with this announcement today that they're going to look at their uh, policies and practices, that they're just incredibly tone deaf. They're not reading the room. It's time to go away. Uh, even Squamish First Nation here, who aren't connected to any of this thing, look, we don't even want your husband, uh, Mr. Ramsey, here. Uh, you would think Ms. Abbott would, would see it, obviously, and it's time to go. So let's see what transpires over the, next, over the weekend and perhaps next week and, and how this goes, because this story is not going anywhere. Thank you so much, Richard. It is not. Thanks, Jess. Have a great weekend. Toronto councillors on Wednesday uh, voted uh, to allow multiplex housing citywide, uh, meaning duplexes, uh, triplexes and fourplexes can be built without special permission uh, in neighbourhoods from Rosedale to Westmount, which are very uh, expensive areas in in uh, in uh, Toronto. Now, the decision, uh, many have said, is an upheaval, upheaval of Toronto's long-standing, what they call yellow belt, and that's roughly about 70% of Toronto's zoned residential land that's been restricted for single-family homes. Um, the rule system, uh, the present system, has led to sort of concentrated growth with uh, neighbourhoods dominated by either low, low-slung low homes or uh, sky-high apartment towers. Uh, it was an 18-7 to 7 vote, and as I was listening to the conversation in Ottawa, I was wondering what would that mean for Metro Vancouver? Uh, because Toronto, of course, is a very big city, large city, largest in this country, fourth largest in North America. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about what's transpired in Toronto, what it means broadly for potentially Metro Vancouver is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, what did you think of this uh, this vote on Wednesday in Toronto? I was intrigued by how similar the discussions are between those taking place in Ontario and those taking place in British Columbia, because concurrently with Vancouver's conversation about allowing more than one home on a single-family lot, Toronto's having exactly the same discussion, and they have now just leaped slightly ahead of us. But there are some interesting differences between what Toronto is proposing and what's being contemplated for Vancouver and the rest of the province. Hmm. Um, You're saying slight differences. What did you mean by that? Well, the first thing is that, and probably we need some definitions, Chaz. I mean, when they say a multiplex, what does that mean, uh, as distinct from a cineplex? <laughs> now, a multiplex uh, really refers to one building that contains more than one home. So it could be a duplex, and a duplex, when I define a duplex, I mean two homes, mm-hmm. but it could be side by side, or it could be one above the other, or indeed one behind the other. And it means a triplex, which, again, three homes but within one building, and a fourplex, four homes, but contained within one building. So we're not really talking about four townhouses necessarily here. We're talking about a building that really looks like a large house but may have four, four homes. So in Vancouver and in British Columbia, I think the expectation is we might be looking at two or three separate buildings that might contain three or four homes. Hmm. So that's different. So uh, there have been, there's been some conversation in, in Toronto 
uh, that look, Toronto needs needs uh, more housing, just like Metro Vancouver does. Uh, but some have argued like this step is a little too far because it could inflate land prices. You know, if builders see an opportunity to build and demolish, you know, single family homes to multiplexes, as you say, four homes on a lot. Uh, and it would sort of upset the character of neighborhoods. Um, do you think the public, well, and it's hard to gauge what Toronto's thinking, but certainly in Metro Vancouver, do you think we're at that stage where people will be more accepting of this type of housing in, let's say, traditional single-family home neighborhoods? Yeah, I think people are slowly becoming more accepting. And it's in large part because of the fact that they would like some of their relatives to be able to live close to them or indeed on the same property And then I've often suggested to people that it is somewhat easier to get approvals for new developments now because the people who traditionally oppose them are now ready to move and would like to stay in the neighborhood. One of the things that I think is very important is to talk about the size of these multiplexes or the size of the buildings. Right now in Vancouver, a building can be approximately 70% of the land area. So a single-family house, if you have a 5,000-square-foot land, you can have approximately 3,500 square feet. Under the new proposals, they're not suggesting that you could have four times that because you can have four homes. They're really just saying you might be able to go from a 0.7 to 1 floor space ratio but you would divide it up into four separate homes. So in other words, even under this proposal, the buildings are not necessarily going to be significantly bigger. And I think that's that's very wise. Interestingly, Jazz, in Toronto, mm-hmm. they're actually saying we won't have a limit on the size of the buildings, but we will require certain setbacks from the house next door from the street, from the rear property line. So in, in regards to zoning, so this would mean that you wouldn't need any special permission. You could buy a lot, let's say, uh, and then you could, uh, you'd send it into City Hall and you could build. There's no zoning issues. This is all, that's all done. There's no rezoning issue. It's a question of whether or not you want to build a duplex, a triplex, or a, or, or a multiplex. That's right. And in fact, right now in Vancouver, you have that choice. Builders can go into City Hall and propose a single-family house, or they can propose a duplex on the same lot. And, well, when this this was a change that was made a couple of years ago, and while some people thought this was terrible and it was going to dramatically change the character of the neighborhoods, I mean, in fact, it hasn't been taken up as much as many people feared it might be. And, indeed, especially on corner lots, these can be very attractive homes where there may be one door on one street and another entry door on the flanking street. Do you see a time where you would go into, let's say, one corner of Vancouver and uh, let's just say East Vancouver and say, okay, the city can say, look, these 14 blocks collectively, they are single family, but we will allow you to build more or greater density um, and let the developers deal with the, the, the homeowners and uh, whether you need to you know, bundle the properties, whatever it may be. Could you see something like that occurring? I could, except that I think if you started to do that, people would begin to argue, well, why that block or those 14 blocks and not others? I think what's a better approach is to simply say, let's try this idea, as they're saying in Toronto, but we'll monitor it. 
And uh, the city of Vancouver did the same thing with laneway housing. I actually argued that they should do it on a demonstration basis just to test it out. And at the time, the then director planner said, no, we're going to allow it everywhere. We'll just monitor it. And, of course, after they did uh, review it, they said, you know, this is working reasonably well. We just need to change some of the regulations. So I think that's a reasonable approach uh, for Vancouver and and Metro Vancouver, because it's not just Vancouver that we're talking about now. No, exactly. Can we do what Toronto's done simply because we've got 21 municipalities here, 21 cities? Uh, we already have difficulty with one municipal police force in Surrey. <laughs> Never mind broader challenges. Oh, Jazz, housing policy is easy compared to <laughs> oh, it's policing policy. <laughs> Policing's supposed to be easy. Look how hard that's been over there in Surrey. And I don't mean to yeah. pick on Surrey, but look, we got 21 municipalities. It's going to be different um, pressures yeah. for every council and every mayor. Can we do and rep- can we rep? what Toronto has done? Well, certainly uh, the, the Premier and the Minister of Housing are suggesting that some of these ideas are good ideas and they shouldn't be restricted just to the city of Vancouver or the city of Burnaby. They should apply throughout the entire province. So I think we're all going to watch with interest. I should say, by the way, uh, there's an interesting aspect to this, and that is if you do have three or four homes on a lot, can they all be sold or do some of them have to be rented? And I raise this because I was talking to Frank O'Brien. Some of your listeners may recognize his name. He writes for business in Vancouver, Western investor. And I, I made a bet with him because he thought the government would not allow these homes to be sold, that maybe one would be sold, but the other three would have to be rental. And I bet him a nice lunch that that would not be the case, because if indeed it was proposed that the three extra homes are rental only, then I don't think the policy would really work. I think what we really want to do is to create more smaller homes on these lots and these established neighborhoods that could be more affordable for those who want to buy, as well as for those who want to rent. Michael, in your mind, as someone who's been in around the housing market, how much of an impact have you seen with Airbnb? I think there is a significant impact, and it's somewhat ironic. We were just talking about Toronto. Uh, One of the most illicit things I ever did was stay in an Airbnb in Toronto. I stayed in a luxury apartment in the downtown, but because the owner was not allowed to rent it as an Airbnb unit, you know, I had to go through all sorts of uh, maneuvers in order to not get him into trouble and not get myself into trouble. And I think it's an issue here. I mean, it's quite interesting in looking at what the regulations are. Right now, you're really only supposed to be able to rent out something, a unit or a room, if it's your principal residence and you're living in it six months of the year. Mm -hmm. But the reality is I think there's lots and lots of, of Airbnbs that don't comply with that. And while I don't want to talk about the empty home tax on such a beautiful day, To my mind, Airbnb has had a far greater impact on reducing the supply of available rental housing than the... those unoccupied homes that the empty home tax was targeting. Yeah, we were uh, doing an interview earlier this week on just the uh, housing 
crunch on the Gulf Islands. And a lot of it also beyond not building enough um, rentals over the years. Uh, and they cannot keep their employees because just nowhere for employees to live in many cases has been, of course, the move towards Airbnb. I remember hearing a story of somebody who owned uh, a rental property. I think it was a two-bedroom, uh, and they could have rented it out for about 3200 or something like that. But somebody from, uh, I guess a small business person, rented the place for 3200 but found out that if you just put it on Airbnb, which he did, he could make forty-five to $4,700. Uh, so he's not living there. Uh, he's just offering it up Airbnb. The landlord himself gets the 3200 every month, but the, 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 the difference is the, the, the entrepreneur pockets, but that no one is living there. These are all visitors. There's a lot of people listening to us right now, Jazz, who are doing exactly that. They're renting units and then subletting them out as Airbnb units. Mm -hmm. And I think we heard a story earlier this week about someone who discovered her condo was being operated as an Airbnb, and yet she thought she was just leasing it out to an individual who was living in it. Mm -hmm. It is, I think it is a real issue, and, uh, and the numbers are significant. I don't know if anyone knows exactly how many Airbnb units there are, uh, when I was doing a little bit of research before our discussion, I found there were about 6,600 listings. Now, it wasn't clear to me if that's just in the city of Vancouver or for all of Metro, but the point is there are a lot of units. Now, the other side of the coin is I, I once worked on the expansion of the convention center, so I became familiar with the hotel industry. I don't like the idea of Airbnb units taking away from the success of our hotels. But that said, if our hotels are 100% full, then you can begin to see why maybe it's also beneficial to have some of these Airbnb units. So it's, it's not a black and white issue. It isn't, but uh, when you're losing so many rental units, as we all suspect we are, it is an issue, and, and I want to clarify the the fines for individuals would be five to fifty thousand dollars, and companies would face fines of ten thousand to yeah. one hundred thousand per posting. So they're very, very significant. But it means you're going to have to register with the government as well through their Ministry of Tourism. But uh, many have said the Quebec legislation is what may, what at the end of the day may be the template for many other provinces uh, as well. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I have a TV on uh, in the studio here, so keep an eye on the uh, the hockey game here. Toronto, of course, is playing Florida Panthers. Uh, They're behind 3-1 in the series, and right now the Panthers are leading 1-0. But lots of time still left in the game, of course. But the reason I tell you all that is that there's a new survey out by uh, Research Co., uh, and they basically were asking what Canadian team do you support right now? Uh, in the uh, playoffs, NHL playoffs. And, of course, there's two Canadian teams involved, Toronto, uh, the Maple Leafs, and, of course, the Edmonton Oilers. Joining me now to talk a little about what team you support, being, you know, Canuck fans here. Uh, of course, Ryan Lee Hall and Talia Miller, our technical producer, joining us now. Hello, Talia. Hello. Now, uh, what I found interesting about this survey, and, and I was a bit taken aback, that when they did this survey, they said, well, what, what con- con- uh, team would you would you support? Uh, uh, I'm a British Columbian, and I was actually shocked that Canadians, 53% of Canadians are supporting the Toronto Maple Leafs in the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, while the Edmonton Oilers uh, have 26%. 
Wow. So 53% for the Maple Leafs. And uh, I'm very offended by that. I just want to let you know that. <laughs> I think being Vancouverites, you should be genetically predisposed to hate everything from Toronto. Oh. Maybe it's my opinion. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm coming out swinging here pretty hard. Ooh. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Jess, you know I'm like a, formerly an Ontarian. And I mean, as much as I do support the Canucks, this is where I live now. You can take the girl out of Ontario, but you can't take the Ontario out of the girl. I'll uh, support the Maple Leafs till the day I die. Yeah, Talia's a big Leafs fan here. <laughs> More of a Mitch Marner fan. Watch him go to a different team. I just follow that. Ooh. But definitely oh. love my Maple Leafs. But uh, Ryan, were you surprised 53% for Canadians? I, You know what? I really am because, you know, usually... Everyone is within Canada besides Toronto hates Toronto. So it kind of gets me thinking, you know, 53% of Canadians are rooting for the Leafs. Probably at least 45% of those people are in Ontario. Like it has like there has to be something to this, right? Well, I'm looking at the numbers, 47% of Quebec residents uh, are backing the Maple Leafs, 47% in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, 40% here in BC. Forty. Wow. Well, you know what? There are actually a lot of Leafs fans here in Vancouver. You know, when we when they do come to town, the Leafs and they do play against the hometown Vancouver Canucks. You see a lot of Leafs jerseys in the crowd. Uh, same with you know Montreal. Any of those original six teams, you see a lot of those opposing fans here. But it is kind of surprising that you know forty percent of those people are from uh, British Columbia, or at least forty percent of British Columbians are supporting the Leafs here. Okay. Could you imagine if it was just Toronto in the in the in the playoffs right now? You could. I, I mean, I'm sure there'd be a Toronto broadcaster saying Canada's team or something like that that would set me off (laughs) i know it sets you off with the raptors and with the blue jays and let me tell you jazz uh, they are canada's team they are well they are kind of but you know i'm a i don't know i you know if seattle's gonna get a team it's kind of like the seahawks right uh i know we don't have a canadian nfl team but we feel connected to seattle it's close by lots of canadians go go to watch seattle just geographically geographically canada is such such a big country five time zones Mm -hmm. i just don't feel connected to toronto even though they're fellow canadians (laughs) wonderful people over there uh but i don't like the arrogance that generally emanates from that part of the country and uh, sometimes they ignore us when it comes to govern- governing uh, and resources. So uh, I am actually really surprised at 53%. I really am. I just, uh, I don't know where that's coming from. Or uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it is a central Canada driving up those numbers. But but like I said, 40% in Toronto. I'm curious, Talia, like growing up, you grew up in London, Ontario, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like how deep is this love for the Maple Leafs there? Oh, it's kind of a curse at this point, Jazz. Like, you know, like, I think the reason that we're all rooting for them is that this is, they haven't gotten this far in a long time in the playoffs. So I do think that they need that little bit of extra love from us that hopefully they can keep going. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do enjoy picking on Toronto only because it's been a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, we know you do. We know you do. 2004, Jazz, that was the last time they even won a playoff series. I know, it's wonderful. That, that is really wonderful. wonderful. What? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I've been in Toronto. It's a nice city and all that. And it's, uh, But I just, I just have this visceral... Uh, not a dislike, because I think that's way too strong. I just think that we uh, do not get the fair share of attention, resources from central Canada. Everything we look at government, it's everything's around the east or central Canada, uh, and not enough uh, attention being paid to the west, especially BC and Alberta, especially BC, I would add. Uh, and so I, uh, anytime a Toronto team loses, I, I, I have an extra you know, skip of my step is all I'm trying to tell you guys. <laughs> so I... Oh, and I, and Ryan, you like you you support the Raptors like you're hardcore with the Raptors, right? Toronto Raptors, Toronto Blue Jays, Jazz Canada's team, of course. 
Yeah, well, okay, it's the only baseball team. I'll give you that much. In fact, it's the only I'm NBA team. I know, I know. But uh, for baseball, I kind of I get I get why people like the Blue Jays. I remember when I was in MLA and I would take the ferry over to Victoria, and there's always always would be an extra wait uh, when they were when the Blue Jays were playing to see the um, Mariners. Uh, I just you didn't realize how many Mariners fans there are in BC, especially how many of them live on the island as well, and how many times uh, you know you'd have to wait probably at one ferry ferry ride at least because it was just packed. On you Sundays. mean Blue Jays fans, not Sorry, Mariners Blue, fans? Sorry, here, yeah. yeah, Blue Jays fans. Yeah, yeah Mar- they're playing the Mariners. Yes. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of Mariners fans here within the Lower Mainland, and I get it. You know when they do say that's British Columbia's baseball team, but come on, just walking around downtown Vancouver, you're always going to see more Blue Jay hats than you will Mariners hats. Like it's not even close. I kind of understand. This whole thing about, you know, uh, we feel more of a connection between Seattle than we do with, you know, Toronto and the whole geographic distance. But at the end of the day, Jazz, they're American and you are Canadian. And really, there's not that much in common that we have with each other. No, but, you know, okay, I get the Blue Jays. Like I said, uh, they are diehard fans. uh, And here in Vancouver, they're also a better team on the island. uh, And I'll I'll give you that. But uh, with the Maple Leafs, all I'm saying is a bit taken aback by the 53 percent of Canadians are supporting the Maple Leafs. But uh, they're down three once so I'll, I'll take that and i'm watching the game and the florida's ahead by one so there you go ladies and gentlemen <laughs> well, just, Talia's not happy Talia's with that she's just giving me a look right now pardon uh anyway, it ain't the, over till it's over uh, i do let's talk about mother's day uh, it's filled with uh, joy and celebration and many folks uh, of course whenever we look on our social media feeds We'll be posting, uh, obviously, images of uh, them as kids with mom or perhaps taking mom out for lunch, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever way you celebrate uh, Mother's Day. It is filled with celebration and joy, but it can also be a painful reminder for those who are grieving uh, as well from perhaps a death or an absence of a mother as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about with coping on Mother's Day is Megan Sheldon, CEO of Be Ceremonial. Megan, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, when um, we were initially talking about Mother's Day a couple of days ago um, for this show, and, you know, it is a day of celebration, but you have to remind yourself that, you know, people do uh, go through, um, you know, grief uh, because of an absence of a mother as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, folks you've talked to uh, and what they go through uh, on a day like Mother's Day. Yeah, so I'm a celebrant and end-of-life doula, so people kind of work with me, and I, I help them create a ceremony to acknowledge what they're holding. And a lot of a lot of people reach out um, around Mother's Day. You know, we have a, an app that helps guide them as well with Be Ceremonial. But um, what I find is that people are looking for, for permission to feel multiple things at once. So it might be a, joy, a day of joy and celebration, and it also might be a day full of grief and sadness um, and some of those other feelings that might stir. So whether you've lost your own mom, whether you're estranged from your mom, whether you're, you've had a pregnancy loss or a child loss, or if you never became a mother, there's uh, a lot of us have complicated relationships with, with motherhood. And when we try to look at a day like Mother's Day only through one lens, uh, we're leaving people out. So I think there's a, a big movement right now on trying to be more inclusive to the range of emotions that people might have in connection with a day like this. So how, uh, you know the day is coming, uh, how do you prepare in advance of Mother's Day? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a big movement right now around opting out. So, you know, there's advice, stay off social media. Um, a lot of, you know, wonderful companies are sending messages ahead of time saying you can opt out of our Mother's Day promotional email so you don't get these as kind of a trigger or reminder. 
And that's wonderful. You know, the, the opt-out movement gives us that choice. Um, but what I'm really interested in is what do we do instead? Um, so, for instance, on Sunday, um, like what can you do throughout the day where you're celebrating with your family but also carving out some time um, to grieve and to create, you know, whether it's on your own or bringing together some other people. I know, especially in the pregnancy loss community, there's a lot of events that are taking place where other people who might have had miscarriages or stillbirths will come together and, you know, um, acknowledge their own experiences and share their stories. I think that's a really big part of what we're trying to do through through the ceremonial is give people that reminder that your story is valid. And if you can find people to, to share that story and verbalize it with, then your experience feels more validated and, and more real. Mm-hmm. Now, companies view these holidays as a marketing exercise uh, as well. But, uh, but my sense is, and from what I've been reading, some companies are, as you say, actually aware uh, that uh, people are le- dealing with loss and grief. And, and, and as you say, they are allowing you to opt out of, uh, of uh, I guess, promotional emails. Yeah, there's some great companies here in Vancouver leading the way. I know Vessi, uh, the shoe company, they've been kind of at the forefront of that. And just today, I live in North Vancouver. We got an email from our school telling us that the school has decided not to celebrate Mother's Day or Father's Day because there's a lot of complicated relationships with with motherhood in the school. Um, And so instead, they're going to be creating kind of a more family-oriented project in June and opting out of the traditional kind of come home with a present for mom because if you don't have a mom waiting for you at home, or, you know, if you're in a different kind of makeup of a family, um, you often feel left out. So mm-hmm. for me, the goal is not to take away from what other people want to do. I think it's just holding space for all the different experiences and, um, yeah, feeling feeling that, feeling that empowered to create something that reflects your own unique story. So I, I just want to clarify with what you're saying. So the, the school, or at least the school that you're aware of or district you're aware of, they're not celebrating Mother's Day or Father's Day just because there may be students going through uh, a different um, uh, different environment at home. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, I mean, they, they can celebrate it on their own if they want. They're not telling people not to, but they're not going to be sending home a traditional Mother's Day gift um, because that would create some, you know, some imbalance and, and bring aware, awareness to the kids that might not have a mom for, waiting for them at home. So mm-hmm. I think it's just, um, you know, starting, everybody's kind of fumbling a bit trying to figure out what the best path is. But I think the more that we talk about grief and, and loss and, and death and dying and all of these topics, then we become, it becomes more normalized. So. So on a day like that, day like th- that day, Mother's Day itself, I guess ceremony is mm-hmm. important, ritual is important, or maybe building yourself a schedule, as you're saying, in regards to like, what am I going to do that day? Yeah. Uh, that's all part of it? Yeah. And I mean, you know, ritual for me is simply an action that um, you, you, know, you bring intention into an action in the hope of creating meaning. So it could be the way you make your tea that morning and maybe you spend five minutes just, you know, acknowledging your mom if she's no longer here or um, a child that you lost or, you know, you carve ritual into your day. So you're acknowledging your grief in a, a bit more of a formal way. And then a ceremony would be kind of stringing together a series of rituals. So maybe you invite some, some friends down to the beach and you, um, you know, you bring some flower petals to, and you all honor the moms that you might have lost or the, you know, the motherhood experience that you're grieving and you throw those paddles into the ocean and you have a swim in the sea. Like there's a, a lot of different ways you can bring ceremony into the day that holds space for kind of the more complicated emotions you might be holding. Uh, how should people who have moms and dads for Mother's Day or Father's Day, what kind of things should they be doing in regards to being just mindful of other people? Yeah. 
I think it's, um, you know, if you've got a friend who's lost her mom recently or a long time ago, just be aware that this day is probably a little bit hard for her. She's, you know, she's probably happy and, and excited about a lot of things, and there's a little part of her that's grieving. So ask her to tell you stories um, about her mom or about her child or about her her complicated relationship with motherhood. Um, you know, do something to kind of make her feel inclusive and um, a part of it and hold space for those difficult conversations. I think that's my my advice. And if you feel really, um, you know, enticed about how to create a ceremony, we've built an app that guides you through that process. You can go through and pick, you know, 30 or 40 different secular rituals and create a ceremony that reflects your story. So so the, 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 the app allows you to, to create your own, is it um, uh, media as well? No, so it's a, a guided ceremony platform. So it's an app that you kind of go through these rituals and you pick and choose the ones you like, and then it just walks you through them and invites you to make them on your own. So it, it gives you a place to start. I think a lot of people are uncertain of where, like, how do I start a ceremony? How do I plan a ritual? And we've built, uh, we've taken all of our experience and put it into Be Ceremonial to give people that, that platform and that guide. Uh, what uh, motivated you uh, to be a part of Be Ceremonial and you know, be that individual uh, who uh, is trying to help people get through days like Mother's Day? Yeah, so Be Ceremonial is myself and my husband. We started this after we had recurrent miscarriages and lost a parent. So we were kind of deep in grief and we're secular. We didn't really have a lot of ritual and ceremony to draw from. So I started to research and learn about all these different rituals that exist. Um, we then took all of that knowledge and put it into Be Ceremonial. My husband work, works in tech, so we wanted to make these tools available and accessible to people um, wherever they are. And we've got dozens of different types of ceremonies um, across the life cycle from birth to death. But we've really seen a big um, increase in people searching for the mother loss ceremony in our app recently. Um, we've just really realized that people are holding on to a lot of grief and they're not sure how to acknowledge it. So the mother loss ceremony is a, is a really popular one right now. Has COVID, do you think, made these types of days tougher uh, just because of, you know, two years of isolation? And, and sometimes there perhaps you're spending a lot of time thinking about maybe you should have communicated with, with, with a loved one. Has COVID played a, a role in, in that as well in your mind? Yeah, I imagine, again, it's the both and. It, you know, it's made things harder and it's made things easier. Um, you know, I've, the pregnancy loss community, there's a huge um, you know, connection with people through, through um, Zoom. There's, you know, the, um, last last weekend I held a bereaved Mother's Day ceremony over Zoom. So I had about 100 people sign up from all around the world and join me over Zoom. And we created our own ceremony um, for an hour and a half. And people were joining from different countries, different time zones. So I think the pandemic showed us that the rituals that we might have relied on weren't, um, they, you know, they weren't enough. And so we've had to get creative and find new ways to honor and acknowledge our experiences. And um, I think we're just at the beginning for a lot of us of, of how we reclaim our relationship with ritual and ceremony. Mm-hmm. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's Well, this week, we look at the story of a schoolboy and nail polish, and the Vancouver Park Board declares war on the Canadian goose. Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halibs, a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster. Leah, Sarah, welcome. 
What's Happy Friday, up? Guys. What's up? It's a beautiful weekend. We got lots to talk about. Well, earlier this week, more than two dozen MLAs from across the province uh, painted their nails in support of a Prince Rupert schoolboy. Uh, now, this happened, of course, in our legislature. It all began um, because of a little boy named Shamar. Uh, he showed up at school with his nails painted. I'm going to let his dad, Noel Williams, tell the rest of the story. Take a listen. He's in grade two, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, he had decided to go get a manicure, pedicure with his mom for a late birthday present. It was his birthday back in April, and uh, we didn't get him nothing, that, not at the time, but um, he had wanted to get his nails done because his mom and him were going to get it done and his two sisters. So I let him go, and he wanted to go, so he was happy to be there. And then... Uh, Two or three days later, the teacher had decided to take his nail polish off with nail polish remover in front of the classroom while telling him that the nail polish was ugly and this kid's only eight years old. Uh, so a teacher pulls an eight-year-old uh, to, to the front of the class and tells him the nail polish is ugly. It's ugly and, quote, it's not right. Leah, um, I, we had uh, his dad on Noel on the other day. Can you explain this to me? Like, what, what would possess a teacher to do that? I don't know. They're a moron. I mean, really, this is downright wrong of the teacher. It's an eight-year-old boy. He's expressing himself. I mean, how dare this teacher actually touch this kid? That's ugly. That's wrong. Don't tell him it's ugly and wrong like that. Don't even touch him. Like, to take the nail polish off? My God. If that was my kid, I'd be in there knocking down that door and being shoving that nail polish down that teacher's throat. That's probably what I would do. Because that's wrong. Don't touch a kid. And don't tell them something's ugly. Like, what kind of teacher are are you kids have so much to deal with today you don't need to put that on them as well let them express themselves let them be who they are and get over it like don't tell somebody something like that i just think that's totally inappropriate now we're speculating here sarah but do you think this is part of the broader cultural wars and conversations that have been occurring have been occurring right. in school districts across canada and the united states drives me crazy i mean honestly if the child had turned around and said i don't like your hairstyle and those shoes are completely out of style I mean, there would have been, you know, immediately to the principal's office. This is the kind of stuff that just makes me cringe because there really is this whole thing about, you know, the children are being indoctrinated. So you can't you can't talk about racism or you can't talk about gender identity. Trust me, nobody in grade one, two or three is necessarily having those conversations. But it's it's being used as a wedge issue. It's, you know, people are afraid of, quote unquote, wokeness. And, and an eight year old boy wearing nail polish. I mean, really, this is going to be the problem of for people who cares. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's just so. It's so. I mean, the teacher should have their license revoked, in my opinion, because if that is what you think is appropriate for demonstrating leadership in a classroom and empathy, then I think that somewhere along the line, you you, you dropped out. You know, it's that's just, that's appalling. Mm-hmm. That's just appalling. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I'm just trying to find. I'm thinking, have we missed something? But you know, when talking no, to his dad, no. we missed nothing. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. The boy, little boy had to stay at home for a few days, and is back now. I think he's in a different class. But I can tell you that uh, uh, the MLA uh, in the area there, Jennifer Rice from Prince Rupert, they gave him a hundred dollar gift certificate uh, to the salon so he can go mm-hmm. back and Aww. get his nails redone. So there you go. And then he was there <laughs> celebrating with his. Lately. The teacher actually bullied the child, and the totally. thing is, she made an example of that child for all the wrong reasons, and now the other kids in that classroom are going to follow the leader of the teacher, so you know, you should yeah. be really, really careful of what you say in front of kids. They and has she not seen... Life. 
rock and roll stars, like so many of them have their nails painted oh black. Like so many, exactly. like get over yourself, like big deal, you know? Yeah. I think it seems like any change in society uh, or progress uh, outside of the traditional norms or, you know, gender roles is viewed somehow as a threat for some people, which I don't understand. Like, you know, society's moving forward. You're not hurting anybody. Uh, no. And quite frankly, some gender roles, and, and forget about nail polish for a second, the, the roles were appalling 20, 30, 40 years ago. We're still not at a place of fairness when it comes to gender roles. Well, she probably uh, and- likes Trump. She's probably a when, Trump if, supporter. Well, I was going to say, because when, when you hear the, the conversations of, I miss the old days, or in the United States, make America great again, it's really like, let's wind the clock back to the 1950s where everything was, you know, the same and there wasn't you know these immigrants or people that identified differently how many times Mm -hmm. have we heard from um the older generations in particular well there wasn't any gay people when i was growing up yes there were Mm -hmm. but they were in the closet their lives were horrible they couldn't come out and be themselves because of society Absolutely. Really? Yeah, exactly. One thing you can say about the so-called good old days, goodbye, good riddance. Well, let's talk about Vancouver's goose problem. The park board this week has to plan Monday night to manage the Canada goose population in the city. Now, the motion, if you can believe, included a lethal, the lethal removal mm-hmm. of geese from parks. I call that the nuclear option. Uh, in fact, uh, the reason they are uh, bringing it, they brought in and passed this legislation is that Vancouver, uh, the Canada goose population in Vancouver, they say would increase from 2,000 presently to 10,000 by 2030 unless action is taken. Now, plan A uh, for them includes what they call egg addling, which I'd never heard of before, but basically... It's a process that involves replacing newly laid goose eggs with previously frozen eggs. Uh, there also is uh, conversations around um, landscape modification as well. Uh, the plan B is lethal measures. Now, uh, we want to talk a little bit about the, 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 the geese problem for a second. Uh, here's one of our BuzzLine callers who called uh, not, uh, about, uh, about an incident uh, that happened not too long ago. He was out golfing this individual and we'll let him tell the story take a listen i was at a golf course a couple years ago went to get my ball down by the water and literally almost tripped over a goose protecting its babies didn't know it was there and just like an episode of curb your enthusiasm it bit me in the penis and i don't know if any of you have been bitten by a goose in the penis it hurts it is very unpleasant. So I know that goose was just protecting its fuzzy little babies, but uh, man, that I won't be sorry to see that goose. <laughs> I like the way I like Smart the way I like the way you just said. I don't know if you've ever been bitten in the penis by a goose. How many people have been? Uh, he was so. There's probably a support group. <laughs> Well, at least he's got a great story. You could tell any bar in the world. Leah, let me start with you for a moment. Do you think this is the right way to go, or is it just a question of just us human beings always have to go towards the lethal option or talking about putting down animals, or do you think there's a better way to do things? I think you guys probably know my answer on that. I'm a huge animal lover. I don't believe in culling any animals. I mean, we live on this land. They live on this land. 
humans, you know, we think we need to fix everything by killing. Our population on the earth for humans is out of control. We don't go around killing people. I mean, I'm disappointed actually in the Vancouver board uh, for choosing this. Instead of, like you said, the addling and enforcing the wildlife bylaw, that could help. Instead, they just want the immediate to, you know, kill and be done with it. And I just, I'm disappointed in that, honestly. I don't think that's the right solution at all. It breaks my heart, actually. Now, Sarah, what do you think about this? And it's not just a Vancouver problem. Toronto deals with, I think, because we were earlier in the week when we were covering this story, uh, Denver's got a huge problem uh, as well. They've got some uh, machine they call the Goosenator that uh, that can, I guess, travel along the water scaring away (laughs) geese as well. Or you can, so it's a remote control as well. Um, So all these things are there and they're spending money on it. Uh, Do you think this is the right way to go or, or do you think that perhaps we should just be a bit more patient and sort of find other ways to deal with this issue? I can understand egg addling. I will never understand culling because that usually yeah. leads to shooting or poison. That gets into the ecosystem. It causes more problems than it's it's actually, you know, supposedly solving. And, you know, it's traumatizing for anybody who happens to be going for a nice walk with their children and somebody's out shooting the local geese. I mean, I don't think that's the best way to go about things. But it's the way we handle everything. I mean, look at what we've done with the wolf population, the caribou oh. population. Yep. As it has gone up and down over the years, so what do we do? We go out and shoot the wolves. Here's the thing is if you left the wolves to their own devices, eventually there's too many wolves, not enough caribou. The wolves start to die out, the caribou come back up. But we can't do that because we're so concerned about trying to manage everything, like we've done such a great job with the forest fires and everything else. If we just let some things alone, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I guess partially. Yeah. Uh, partially nature take course. Yeah, I guess partially, I and mean, maybe geese may not be the right example, but you know, you talk about bears uh, coming down in North Vancouver or Coquitlam. I mean, the city continues to expand as well, and it's it's their habitat that we're encroaching. We're going on. up on their land, exactly. What do we expect? You know, that really well, and upsets people me leave, when they kill people them. People leave their garbage out. They don't pick up their fruit and, and stuff like that off the trees. And their the garbage situated. And then, and, and then the next thing you know, dog uh, bears are being shot. So, you know, yeah. we, if, if we're going to live next to the mountains and live in this beautiful environment where birds and bears and cougars and all that kind of stuff are going to be, we need to pull our head out of our asses and start acting yeah. like responsible stewards. Well, I think it was the, this week or last week uh, there, was the, the, there was an appeal of the, of the huge fine that one individual got because he purposely was feeding, and it could have been out of ignorance, but feeding bears. And you can't be yeah. doing that, right? So it's it, no. human beings are uh, are a big part of the problem here. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. We have to smarten up with that because we're a part of the problem and it's not going to change. They're just going to keep killing them. So people that live I, up on the mountains like that need to definitely lock up their garbage and take care of everything yeah. because they're just going to keep I, coming down. Where are they supposed to go? Mm-hmm. You know. I do have a goose story, though. When I was a little girl, <laughs> we lived in Victoria. And my dad, who rest his, rest his soul, was a sick person at times and i'm and i was going to use an extra <laughs> oh, word no. there but i would get beeped but he had it he, he was like you know this is my dad and i love him but we would go down to the beach in victoria 10 mile point area and my dad would hand me crackers and send me over to the geese which of course would come the geese and the ducks would come running and i would go screaming i'm like two years old at the time uh-huh. but every single week because i was a small child i would forget dad's Here's the bread and the crackers and off i would go and be swarmed by geese i have a healthy respect for geese <laughs> I thought a he very was healthy shoot respect them. for you. I thought he had you. No, 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 no. I would <laughs> never tell a story like that. Okay, but I mean, there's tons of geese down here in South Korea. There's actually like at 148th and 16th, there are actually city written up signs saying like wildlife crossing, and the geese often cross at 16th 
and 148th. And I have on many occasions gotten mm-hmm. out of my car and starting to, to cross. Along. And I have like gotten out of my car and I'm like stopping traffic and, you know, the traffic reporter in me comes out all over again. And I'm making sure I cross. It's like it's a couple of minutes out of our day, you know? Yeah, they live with us. We have to be able to live with them. Like, exactly. Exactly. Ladies, thank you so much for your time. It's a beautiful weekend. Hope you guys have lots of stuff to do, and it's a lot of fun this weekend. Thank you so much. I have an air conditioner. Have a great weekend. <laughs> you have an air conditioner. <laughs> Me too. There Woo-hoo. you go. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.